So we have a special guest speaker this morning, and many of you are familiar with him. His name is Lou Warad, and his wife Marguerite is here. Um, they have a, uh, a special ministry to the uh, Eastern Europe and the Ukraine and into the former Soviet Union. And um, Well, uh, I, uh, I could tell you a lot of things about him, I guess, but uh, he is uh, certainly my brother in the Lord, and we've uh, learned to appreciate uh, the... A couple over the years, they recently have moved to Ingersoll, f- sorry, from Ingersoll to uh, London, Byron, I guess it is, and uh, so uh, uh, I'm trying to uh, embellish all kinds of things here for you, Lou, to make you sound impressive. Uh, uh, he holds a PhD from the University of Dallas Seminary or something like that. No, I don't think that's true. Anyway, uh, come on up and preach, will you, Lou? Actually, when people ask me to speak in ask what you wanted to say in the beginning, I say, the least said, the better. You know, because then you don't have to live up to anything. Right? You just, just give them the opportunity to speak, speak the word of God. And that's what I, what I really want to do today, but I, I want to commend church. We haven't been here for a while, probably a couple of years. And not because I wasn't asked, but because I was engaged somewhere else and uh, wasn't able to come. And actually today, uh, we're on our way to Toronto, actually, this afternoon for a group of Chinese. Marguerite and I are very heavily involved in ministry now with uh, Chinese people in the Oakville area. And uh, so once a month on a Sunday afternoon, we get together. And uh, it's kind of interesting when you're in a group and they, uh, they all say, you know, uh, I came to Christ this year, this year, this year, this year. I mean, it's like um, it's incredible what God has done in bringing people into this country uh, who needed to know him and have found him and and want to be together. So we're on our way to uh, Markham uh, this afternoon, actually not Oakville, but to Markham to spend time with um, some of our children in the Lord. And that's really uh, an exciting opportunity. So uh, just worked out. We had to pass by here. And uh, when Darren called and said, can you do this? It, um, it, it actually fit in, fit in very well. I was raised in a Christian home. I'm very thankful for that. And um, I was raised with hero stories. I love hero stories, don't you? Uh, you know, sometimes people just stand up at a moment in time and do something that you never dreamt that they could do. They actually never dreamt they could do it until they did it. So I think of a person by the name of uh, Eric Marcioni. And we'll put up his slide, okay? Forget. There we go. Eric Marcioni, just an ordinary guy driving his SUV in Montreal, hears police sirens, sees a, a police chase. It's chasing this yellow car. It's aimed right for an intersection where there are people. Eric Marcioni decides there's only one thing he can do, drive his SUV into the intersection, and the yellow car crashes into it. No one's hurt except the person in the yellow car. He's also apprehended. Pretty cool, right? And then there's this girl, a 17-year-old girl by the name of of Sarah Picard. She gets out of her car in B.C. in a parking lot, sees a man accosting a woman, races across the parking lot, terrorizes the man, saves the woman's life. 17-year-old girl. Then there's another fellow by the name of Russell Fee. Russell Fee's camping in a uh, a provincial park, and in a provincial park, next to him, he hears these strange sounds. It's a wolf attack. 
He doesn't have anything other than his bare hands, races over to the tent, punches out the wolf, saves the family. I mean, these were just ordinary people minding their own business who in a moment changed the world, changed the lives of so many. I grew up on great stories. I was raised in a Christian family, and, you know, I I can still remember all of the incredible stories that I've learned in Sunday school, and uh, I can sing all of the choruses that go along with them. Probably a lot of you can, too. You know, dare to be a Daniel, you know. Three wise men lived very long ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anybody remember that song? Yeah. Or... You know, uh, Joseph or David and Goliath and, well, the whole book of Judges, there's heroes, right? But today I want to speak to you about a hero by the name of Esther. And as I speak to you about Esther, I I have to tell you that uh, this particular book of Esther is very, very well known by Jewish individuals. In fact, it's read every year. So if you were raised in a Jewish home, you're going to know the book of Esther very well because it's going to be read every year at the Feast of Purim. In fact, this whole event that we're going to talk about adds the only non-Jewish festival. And when I say, when I say non-Jewish, I mean non-Pentateuch Jewish festival. The Feast of Purim. When in fact... That's what's one of the things you have to learn in preaching class early in the game is like, whatever happens, happens. We're going to get through it one way or the other. We're good to go? Yeah, sorry about that. Anyhow, this book of Esther, uh, a lot of Christians know the story. Oh, yeah, now I've got to stay here. <laughs> oh, man. What a loose cannon, right? Okay. Anyhow, this, this story of Esther known by Jewish family, known by a lot of Christians. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have the veggie tale version, you know, which isn't exactly a literal following of the, of the text in Esther. And I don't have time this morning to go into all... Uh, this, this book of Esther is a work of art. I mean, if you are going to teach somebody how to write a novella, you take them to the book of Esther and say... Watch what this writer does. It's absolutely incredible. But I know that you're not here on a Sunday morning for a lecture in literary structure in the book of Esther. It would be helpful, but you're not here for that. So I want to do something a little different today. I want to spend some time taking a look at this simple story. It's a simple story simple story, and I want to review it for you. I just want to walk through the book of Esther because you can't just choose a verse out of the book of Esther and say, I'm going to preach on this verse. There's only two of them that you might be able to do that with. Out of 10 chapters, maybe two verses that you could do that with. One, you all know, if I perish, I perish, right? And the other one is for such a time as this, okay? Once you get past those two, it's really tough sledding in Esther if you're going to preach on a text. And we're going to look at those texts this morning, but they fit in the context of something else. So when I say they fit in the context of something else, let's begin telling the story. The story is there's this king by the name of Xerxes, Ahasuerus, 
He's, he's a big king. He's the king of the largest nation in the world at that point in time. He rules a vast empire. He is wealthy. He is powerful. And he's proud. He decides that in order that everybody would understand how great he is, it would be good to kind of have like a celebration, a half-year-long celebration to demonstrate how incredible he really is. And then he decides to follow that up with a final seven-day feast for the nobility and the people who live in the city of Susa so that they really appreciate their king, and he pulls out all of the stops for this party. It's a huge party. As you read the book of Esther, at this party, they're drinking a lot. The longer they drink, the less intelligent the decisions they make. And so the king makes a decision. His decision is not only does he have this incredible empire, not only does he have this incredible palace, but he has a trophy wife. And the trophy wife should be brought out in public to see how gorgeous the king's wife actually is. Now, the king's wife, Vashti, is having a bad hair day. Or maybe she just decides that she doesn't want to be an object, to be ogled or whatever. And she decides not to come. And this, of course, sets up an incredible problem for the king. I mean, you have a king whose queen won't even listen to what he's saying. What's going to happen to the subjects in the nation? They bring in seven incredible geniuses to figure out what to do to solve this problem. And they all agree the solution to the problem is this. Vashti will have to be removed from being queen because if she's not punished, then all of the other wives in Persia are going to begin behaving in the same way. And that would just be mayhem. So the search for a new queen begins. You know the search for the new queen is going to find Esther. It's going to take Esther a year to get ready to meet. She has to go to the cosmetologist or whatever for a year to be ready to visit the king. And all of a sudden now what we have is this introductory little story about how an unknown girl ends up in the palace of the most powerful king in the world at that time. Okay. We're told a few other things at, that, at the end of that part of the story. We're told that Esther is a Jew, and then we're told that she has an uncle, or rather a cousin, by the name of Mordecai, and we're told that Mordecai sits at the palace gates, and at the palace gates, on one occasion, he hears about an assassination plot an assassination plot for the king's life. He reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king, and the king, well, his secretaries make sure that that event is recorded in the annals of the king. Now, that seems like a not very important point, but it becomes a very important point in the story of Esther. Now, the story switches a little, and we're introduced to another character. 
character by the name of Haman. Haman is a detestable person. The more that you get to know him, the less you like him. Haman every day passes by Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai is at the palace gates, and and Haman is the second most powerful person in the kingdom at this point in time. We don't know how he got that position because in chapter 1, there are seven people who are ahead of him. Somehow he jumps over them, becomes second. And as second in command, people are to bow down to him. But Mordecai will not bow down. Haman hates this. He more than hates this, he he hates Mordecai. And the more he thinks about hating Mordecai, he not only hates Mordecai, he hates Mordecai's people as well. And comes up with this devious plan to annihilate Mordecai's people. Going to go to the king and say, you know, there's a people in this land They're not very trustworthy. They're not very good. They don't do much for you. They live by themselves. They operate by their own rules. Um, They're outliers, so to speak, and be good to get rid of them, and I'll give you 10,000 shekels of silver if you'll give me the privilege of eliminating them. And the king says, go ahead. They're yours. Now, we have to remember at this point that the king doesn't know Haman doesn't know that Esther is a Jew. So his little plan has some ominous things in the future. It's going to be a very difficult situation. Somehow Mordecai hears about this plot. Well, actually, it's written. He sends a message to Esther. Esther, we're in deep trouble. Our people are going to be annihilated. What are you going to do about it? You you need to go to the king and tell him what's going on. And she says, sends a little message back to Mordecai. If I go to the king and I'm uninvited, I face risk of death. If he doesn't extend the golden scepter in my direction, I'm dead. Mordecai says to her, you know what? If you don't go, God's going to raise up somebody who will go. You and your family, you'll be left in the dust. And she determines... If I perish, I perish. And so she goes to the king, and the king, oh, Esther, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a long time, actually 30 days. And um, what can I do for you? And she said, well, you know, I'd really like to have you and Haman come to a banquet this evening, just a little banquet, and then, and then I'll tell you what I'd, what I'd really like. And so Haman is all set to go to the banquet. He's going, he's going to eat with the king and the queen. Doesn't get any better, right? And now, he, that evening, he's there, and the king says, uh, Esther, what is it that you really want? And Esther says, well, I'd really like for you and Haman to come back tomorrow night to another banquet, a bigger banquet, maybe a better banquet. You know, and Haman's like, wow, I'm going to get to eat with the king and queen two days in a row. How much better can it get? 
But on his way home, he's got to pass Mordecai. And that just bugs him. He goes home and his wife and their friends say, you know what? Why don't you just kill him? Get it over with. Kill him. Build a, build a gallows and hang him on a gallows and get done with him. While Haman and his wife, you see, this is where the writer is so, so good. While Haman and his wife are figuring out how to kill Mordecai, the king can't sleep. Now, what do you do when you can't sleep? You read history books. Not always, but the king asks for the annals to be brought out. And all of a sudden, as it's being read, the story of how Mordecai actually saved his life by reporting the, the assassination attempt is read. And he asks the servants, what's been done for this man? Not a thing. Nothing's been done. Now, the next morning... Haman is on his way to the palace explaining to the king why he needs to kill Mordecai. And the king is coming downstairs to his his office and he's got one question on his mind. And what's that question? That question is, what can be done for a man that the king determines to honor? And is there anybody who could help me figure that out? And they say, Haman's right out here. Let's get Haman. He'll know what to do. And so the king says, Haman, what should be done for the man that the king desires to honor? He says, hmm, wonder what he wants to do for me today. Right? And then all of a sudden, he says, dreams up this grandiose plan of what should be done for the man the king wants to honor, thinking he's going to benefit from all of this great advice. He said, you know what? I think that a robe, one, a robe that the king has worn, you know, that everybody will recognize, this is the king's robe, and put him on a horse that the king has ridden and lead him through the streets and cry before him. This is what the king does for the man he wants to reward. And the king says, That is a fantastic idea. I'd like you to do that for Mordecai. Can you imagine a worse thing happening in the world? The man you hate, you are now leading through the city saying, this is what the king does for the man that he wants to honor. But of course, there's another banquet this evening, right? At the banquet, the king says, Esther, what, what is it you'd like? Up to half of the kingdom, I'll give you whatever you want. Yeah. Half the kingdom is yours, she says. I'd like you to save my life and my people's lives. And the king asks, who did this thing? And she says, that vile man, Haman. That vile man, Haman, has done this. If you know the story, 
the king burns with it. The king has evidently an incredible temper. It's recorded several times in the book that he burned with anger. He doesn't exactly know what to do. He steps out of the room for a moment. Haman realizes his situation is horrible. He, he's not going to get out of this, probably not going to get out of it alive. His only hope is that if he begs Esther, maybe she'll ask the king for a little mercy or something like that. And so as he begins begging Esther, he, he inches his way closer and closer to the couch and unfortunately falls on the couch at just the time the king is walking back into the room. And the king says, isn't it enough what you've done already? You're going to molest the queen in my sight? Hang him on the gallows he prepared for Mordecai. Now, if you know the rest of the story, the people that, the people that Haman wanted to destroy are actually going to get to destroy the people who wanted to destroy them. Now, that's an incredible story, wouldn't you say? It is an absolutely incredible story. The problem with it is it's secular. it, It is so secular. As you're working your way through that story, you say, like, what about the temple? I didn't hear anything about the temple. I didn't hear anything about prayer. You know? I didn't even hear anything about God. You can look through the whole book of Esther, all 10 chapters, and you won't find the word of God once. Marguerite and I lived and worked in Russia for several years. In a Russian Bible, God's name in Esther, because no Russian could believe that you could have a book of the Bible without God's name in it, so they put it there. But in the original text, it's not there. Nothing of God. What there is, is sensuality, drinking, partying, scheming, plotting, ethnic hatred, revenge. I mean, chance and chaos everywhere. <laughs> Sounds like Canada, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. And that's why I wanted to speak on Esther today, because... Sounds like Canada. I mean, what have we got going on? We got secularity, sexuality everywhere in our society. We got no mention of God. Nobody's calling out for prayer. There's ethnic hatred. There's revenge. All of these things are taking place right now. We're saying secular. This story's secular to the core. No, it's not secular at the core. It's very, very secular but not at the core. You say, really? Really. Because here's what you have to do when you're reading this book. You have to ask yourself, is it just by chance that Vashti has a bared head? Is it just by chance that Esther an unknown Jewish girl, ends up being the queen? Is it just by chance that Mordecai, sitting by the the gates of the palace, overhears an assassination plot? Is it just 
by chance? Is it just by chance that when the queen approaches the king, he extends the golden scepter to her? Is it just by chance that Haman trips and falls on the couch of the queen? There's no chance that it's chance. That's what you're to understand in this book. You're going to be, the writer wants you to ask the question from beginning to end, where's God, where's God, where's God, where's God? And all of a sudden you realize that God is everywhere in this book. Absolutely everywhere. It's not chaos, it is God at work. That's the very first lesson that, that we come to. It's not chaos, it's not chance, it's God. And that this God is a God who never changes, as it says in Malachi, I am the Lord, I don't change. There was a previous king, a king of Babylon, who you remember was somewhat like this king, proud and arrogant. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember one day, chapter four, I think it is, of the book of Daniel, that he finds out bad things are going to happen in his life. He's going to chew grass like a cow. He's going to grow fingernails like a hawk, eagle, whatever. Yeah, he's going to be sleeping out in the dew. I mean, it's, it's a mess. And then all of a sudden you come to the end of that chapter, which I think is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the God of heaven. He moves among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and nobody can say unto him, what are you doing? This is God. This is the God who says to us through Psalm 23, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil. Why? Because I and with you. This is the God in Jesus who's in a boat with the disciples, you remember? And they're, they're mad. They get mad. I mean, it is a bad, bad storm. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? Because there's no trouble. That's why he's sleeping. When there's trouble, he'll be awake. When there's trouble, he'll do something. And that is, you look at this book of Esther, all of a sudden you realize that at every moment, in the middle of all of this crisis, even in Canada now, in the middle of all of the nonsense, and there's a new conversion therapy bill being put out, anti-conversion therapy, that's worse than one that just got dismissed. I ask myself often, who's doing the conversion? It's a good question. But we need to understand as Christians, in the midst of all of this chaos and chance, it's not a chance. God is alive, God is well, and God's people need to be God's people and act like God's people and think like God's people. That's the first thing we see in the book of Esther that's really important. God is everywhere. I like the way Carl Jung, the uh, psychiatrist, put it. Bidden or not, he is here. You know, like that? Bidden or not, he 
is here. There's a second thing that comes up that's kind of hidden. Remember, this God thing is hidden in this book. I mean, it's pounding you and pounding you and pounding you, but most of us miss the point because the story is such a great story. We're caught up in the story and say, instead of saying, why is all of this happening? We say, wow, this is an incredible story. It is an incredible story because God's at work everywhere. Now there's a second thing that, that we have to keep our attention on, and that second thing is this. God can and does raise up heroes. One of my favorite texts in the Bible is found over in Second Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout all the earth, seeking for a righteous person whom he can come alongside. As you read the book of Esther, you know very, very little about Mordecai and Esther. You're going to get to know that Mordecai is a pretty incredibly gifted guy when it comes to administration and running a kingdom. You know that Esther is an absolutely beautiful woman. Other than that, you don't know very much until one day. Until one day when there's a crisis. And then all of a sudden you, you hear Mordecai saying, listen, this is never going to happen. This is never going to happen. If Esther, if you don't do something about this, God is going to do something about this. There's a man of faith. And he's going to do what he can do about it. He is encouraging the one person he knows that has the ear of the king to do something about this. And she finally comes to the conclusion, right, it's my responsibility. It's not about me. Not about me. It's about God's people. If I perish, I perish. And with those decisions... Two things happen. One, they as individuals become mature and believe more than they've ever believed before that when you stand up for God, God is right there with you. And secondly, they become powerful influencers in the nation in which they live. And I want to tell you this morning, God is looking in this day and age for men and women who are going to stand up and say, if I perish, I perish. I don't care. It's about God. It's about God and his kingdom. It is about God and his word. It is about God and his plan. It's about God. Not about me. There's this third thing that comes up in this book. A third lesson that we really need to see, and the third lesson is simply that God keeps his promises. What's the promise? It starts in Genesis chapter 12. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you this land And through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. 
He tells Abraham that four times, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. He tells it to Isaac one time. He tells it to Jacob three times. You get the idea. It's a promise. It's a promise. It's a promise. When you go over to Exodus chapter 2, at the end of Exodus 2, when God looks down on the misery of his children who are in Egypt, he says what? He remembered the promise that he made to Abraham. It's 500 years ago that he made that promise. He remembers it. When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. According to 2 Peter 1, you and I as believers have divine and precious promises. Esther and Mordecai, I understand, there's the promise of God. If God said it, it's going to happen. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity of preaching on Balaam. I, I like Balaam's. I, I like talking donkeys and stuff like that. I like funny stories. Right? And you know, the whole story of Balaam is what about... Balak hires him and says, listen, I know, Balaam, that whoever you bless can be blessed and whoever you curse is going to be cursed. God says, do you really think so? That's my line, not yours. Balaam can't curse one thing. Every time he tries to curse, he blesses. There's one final lesson we need to learn today in this book of Esther, and it's this. God finishes business. God finishes business. You say, well, what are you talking about, Lou? What I'm talking about is Mordecai and Haman. If you read in chapter 2 and verse 5, all of a sudden you find out that, that Mordecai is a Jew and he's got a couple of, what should we say, um, a couple of people in his lineage whose names are very interesting. Kish. And all of a sudden you start thinking, hmm, Shimei, Kish, tribe of Benjamin. He must be related to Saul somehow. And then in chapter 3, you read about Mordecai. And you read about Mordecai and it says, he's an Agagite. And all of a sudden, we are taken back to about chapter 15 in the book of 1 Samuel. God says to Saul, I want you to kill the Amalekites. I want you to do that, every last one of them. Their king is Agag. Remember, Saul doesn't kill Agag. He doesn't, you know, you know, Samuel says, I hear some sheep bleeding, don't I? It's a funny story. You know, I, I hear sheep and goats and stuff like that. Did you get, no, we saved the good stuff for God. Yeah. We're going to sacrifice it to God. He can tell you sacrifice. He told you to kill it. And all of a sudden now, see, years and years later, okay, let's say another 500 years later. God finishes business. 
that Agagite and his descendants, his people, are going to be overcome by the Jews, God's people. God watches out for us. God makes a promise. He keeps a promise. When God says something needs to be done, that's going to be done. You need to understand God's in control. And because all of these things are true, we need to be ready to stand in a time of crisis and say, enough is enough is enough. If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to be God's man. I'm going to be God's woman in this world. And we'll see what God will do. Will you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It is more sharp than any two-edged sword devised between soul and spirit and between bone and marrow. We pray that you would apply it to our lives today. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And now we ask that you would help us to live godly, holy, fearless lives for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.